Welcome everyone to the Hive Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. The Hive's mission is to bring a diverse community together in appreciation of all kinds of poetry by all kinds of people. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and today I have the great honor of being able to speak with Jimmy Santiago Baca, who's here today with us uh, from Albuquerque. Right, Jimmy? Correct. Okay, it's really terrific to have you here, and I'm so pleased to be able to speak with you. I just want to read a little bit about some of what you've done in the past, the fact that you're an award-winning poet, essayist, novelist. You've written more than 30 books, also the executive producer and author of the feature film Blood In, Blood Out, which just got a write-up in the LA Times. So I want to talk a little bit about that later. Books include American Orphan, Laughing in the Light, When I Walk Through That Door, I Am, An Immigrant Mother's Quest, Healing Earthquakes, and perhaps one that he is most um, notable for, A Place to Stand. Uh, Jimmy's been the recipient of lots of awards, including the American Book Award and a Pushcart Prize. Um, and you... Jimmy lives and works in his native New Mexico. So, so good to have you here, Jimmy. Um, I wanted to start out today talking about what, you, what you're reading right now or what you've read recently that has really sparked you, inspired you, um, made an impact. Well, that's an easy question. I've been reading the same two books for the last three months, War and Peace, uh, by Tolstoy and Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. Oh, those are two good ones to read. Yeah, I've been going through them with a fine-tooth comb. They are <laughs> rich pieces, and, you know, they take months to read. I remember, I think um, I heard a quote once uh, from Victor Hugo about Les Mis, and someone had said, God, it's such a long book. And he said, you know, it took me 10 years to write it. It should take you 10 years to read it. So... <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I'm in the midst of a 10-year book now. Yeah. So I completely I completely feel affectionate with that comment. Yeah. yeah I book, like that. A book huh? you are a book you are writing? A, a book I'm writing. After 10 years, I finally figured out the structure. Uh structure. Um sometimes I have fun with a book and I'll just I'll just uh leap into it. Pretty much the way kids on summer vacation leap into the lake. Mm -hmm. um, you know, after having lived in Spoolier and an urban urban neighborhood and stuff. But uh, 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 there are certain books that call for something different than that. Uh, they, they, certain books, there's some books between books that are just uh, playful. You know, you get to, you get to romp in it and, and, uh, have fun with them and stuff. And then there's the books between those playful books that call up all your craft to make it the best you can make it. And uh, I enjoy this one a lot because that's one of those books. 
It's it's asking for everything that I've learned in 50 years. And I love it because um, I've isolated myself from all the awards and all the uh, acclaim and all the interviews. That's why I was a little surprised that I took this one. But I think that I felt so a fraternity with your father that I took it because uh, for some reason he, he came through. But um, yeah, this is one of those books where you uh, where you return to your innocence, and I really love that uh, uh, because that's where the real writing happens. It's uh, you write, as Henry would say, almost with someone that you love. Mm. I'm not quite sure who that person is that I love in this particular instance, but uh, I'm writing to that person or persons, and. It's also calling up the best that I can deliver as a writer, which is such a spectacular feat today with with the uh, the amount of requests that I get about just handing in anything I can just to have my name in their magazine or book or something. You really, really have to just burn the corrals and destroy the ropes and go walking off into the hills. Oh, I like that. This. I like that those metaphors. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's that kind of a book. And it's it's a uh, it's inspired by this Vesky and uh uh some of the people that that, that I really admire for the mm. craft. Jim Harrison is another great one that I that I'm that I'm going through his books now and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Terrific. Well, we'll uh keep an eye out for that one. Good one. I like it because it's completely different. I love it. Yeah. I never ever try to repeat myself. At the, uh, I think it was Sonia who said, uh, or Saki, or one of the other, one of those who said, uh, "You know what all the failures are in the book you've just written, but you have to write that." It's like learning how to dance and not knowing how to, but really digging the partner you're dancing with. Yeah. <laughs> you want to take her home with you after the dance, you know. <laughs> And that's why you're all that's why you can just let all these little foibles go, all these flaws. Yeah, all those little missteps. It's okay. It's, yeah, it's fine. Okay. You can step on her toes all night long and still. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. Yeah. Um, let's move to one of your poems here, Jimmy. I'm thinking that we'll start out with a poem from Healing Earthquakes. Oh, good. Um, and I'm looking at the poem. It's I really like the way so many of your poems are, they move away from those titles. They're either, they're often a date or just the first line or um, no no title whatsoever, which lets the poem speak for itself. But this one is one on page seven. It's uh, just, it's got the, it's three. Um, and I thought that that would be a good way to open the poems today because it's self-referential and uh, it's kind of an ars, ars poetica. So would you be so kind as to read that one on page seven? You know, yeah, you know, I would like to. <laughs> I have another one in mind. Oh yeah, go for it. Yeah. Can I, can I replace that one? Sure. This, this is number five. It's not very far from number three, but okay. you, know, you, you don't even have to refer to it because I'm going to change the words. I, I have lines that I've changed in memory. 
Okay. I haven't corrected them in the book yet, but here it goes. Okay. Portate bien. Behave yourself. You always said to me. I behaved myself when others were warm in winter and I stood in the cold. I behaved myself when others had full plates and I stared hungrily at them. Never speaking out of turn. Behaving like a good boy until my behavior was shattered by outsiders who came to the village one day, insulting grandpa because he couldn't speak English. And English became the invaders of sword, the oppressor's language that hurled me into a profound despair. That day, grandpa and I walked into the farm office for a loan and this man didn't give grandpa an application because he was ignorant, he said. And that moment cut me in two pieces. One screaming grandpa was a beautiful man and the other that this office clerk was a rude beast. And I saw my grandpa's eyes go dark with remorse that his grandchild would witness him humiliated. And that instant, the apricot tree that was his soul was buried, was cut down using English language as an ax. But your words, portate bien, grandpa, resonated me. The scene of you in that room and what came out of your soul. And it's the scene, grandpa, that's never left me. Through the sadnesses and the terrors and the momentary joys that have bloomed and blossomed in me and broken and shattered my innocence, I've never forgotten the room that day. The way light hazily filtered in the windows and your strong dignified presence in your sheepskin coat and those field working boots. That scene, Grandpa, the way that the boards creaked under your work boots haunted me. Even when my children were born at home and my hands brought them into the world, that scene was in my hands. The scene, that dusty day with the drought baked clay in my little pants cuffs and the sheep starving to feed and my grandpa's hopes up that the farm aid man would help us like he had others. That scene framed in my 10-year-old mind, having prayed at mass that morning at five, begging God, please, Lord, please don't let our sheep die. Perform a miracle for us with a little help from the farm aid man. And I knew entering that door, seeing white people come out smiling with signed papers to buy feed that we were gonna survive the drought. And then the scene with its wooden floor and my shoes scraping sand grains that are blown in and a hot sun warming my face and me standing in the room later by myself after the farm-made man had turned us down. And I knew our sheep were gonna die. I knew grandpa was going to die. He couldn't deal with the heartbreak. And that moment, Opened the wound in my heart, and in the wound, the scene replaced itself a thousand times with the grief and the hurt and the confusion. That day changed my 10-year-old life forever and made me a man, made me understand that because Grandpa couldn't speak English, he had to die. And when I turned and I walked out the door on the main street again, squinting my eyes at the whirling dust, the world was never the same because it was the first time I ever witnessed racism and how it could kill a people's dream. 
And during all of it, all you ever said, Brembo, was, Portate bien, mijo, behave yourself, my son. Behave yourself. Thank you, Jimmy. Isn't that a beautiful poem to him? It's a great poem to him. Yeah. But uh, but also to the, of course, to the wider lens of immigrants and racism. And, and that's something you do so well is just bring that personal into the the global and and address it. It feels like it's been a life mission <laughs> for you. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's mythology in all points where one begins to write a poem. I think you're offered the myth. And in the myth, it becomes not only local, but becomes universal. Because I think the people in Africa, the people in Wales, the people in wherever you're from, understand that disappointment in somebody they love when that person they love was expecting something to further their life and take care of the family and didn't get it. I believe that there are certain wounds that actually will stop you from living. I don't think they necessarily have to be physical. And in his case, the fact that he would no longer have sheep, which was such an integral part of his life, I think I think no gave him no reason to live anymore. Mm. You know, I think I think I think people who are blessed are not those that summit the mountain peak. I think the ones that are blessed are those who find connection at the bottom. You know? So true. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella. And if you've just tuned in, we are speaking today with Jimmy Santiago Baca, uh, acclaimed international poet and educator, screenwriter, novelist, essayist, memoirist. Yeah, that that poem does speak to that universal almost it's it's that place where innocence is destroyed in a way where we see for the first time that adults aren't going to save us adults aren't the gods we thought they were and they're just human yeah i don't think i don't think narcissism which is so prevalent today in so much poetry has any sort of play in this poem I think I think when a poem like this is written, at least by me, I think the beauty of it is that it, it transcends my grandpa and me into something else where it begs the question, why the walls? Why the separation? Why the destruction? Why the negativity? And it's beautiful when you take it when you take the poem from you. And you give it away to that place. I don't know if you want to call it the muse or inspiration or what, but you give it away where it doesn't belong to you. So it can be read. It can be read in Mexico City or Chile or Alaska or anywhere. And I can see the person reading it nod their head. Yes, yes. They understand because they have a, they have the same sort of sensibility when it comes to systems that are put in place to separate some people, give something to someone and nothing to the other. That's that kind of a poem. So I really like that poem quite a bit. 
I'm glad you read that one. I'm glad you turned down mine and read yours. <laughs> well, yeah, I've chosen my own poems and had an entire auditorium of people walk out. So, <laughs> you know, I'm sort, of, I'm sort of walking on thin ice here, you know? Yeah, that's all right. You know, the worst that can happen is you fall through and get iced up. So, <laughs> um, all right, let's let's move to another one. Um this this one uh, I picked out from the Isai poems, which were published in 2013. And th that was a book of poems dedicated to your son. And it has a fabulous foreword by Carolyn Forche, who is you're definitely following or you're both in the same canon. You're both doing the same kind of work, I think. And it was just a great foreword by her her book too in the lateness of the world that she's written recently is a terrific one if people don't know about that they should pick that one up but the poem that i'm suggesting from that one is on page 36 and it's just got the date 122603 so what do you think if you want to do that one sure, sure okay sure. okay this comes from the book uh, book one the eastside poems Esai in bed, between his mother and me, arms extended up at the dark ceiling. He studies his hands as if they were newly discovered planets. Rotates them slowly. Radiant swans gliding over the silence of pre-dawn in her bedroom, causing airy ripples of light waves on the air. It's Christmas season, but I won't celebrate this year. No tree up, no presents, won't send any cards. Too many wars, too many lies from politicians, too much hatred, racism, and indifference. Too many people arguing that they are right. Too many wrecked kids in the streets, too many indifferent parents, too many obsessed with making money, too many on drugs because they need it to survive and endure the numbing madness of a world that can kill all day one night and then celebrate Christmas the next. Of a world of people whose goal is to control the universe ultimately, to amass power at any expense, to manufacture bombs, to annihilate millions at once. So no, I will not string Christmas lights in the yard nor pretend for appearance that this is Christmas. It is not. The darkness of my yard announces to passerby my brooding disillusionment. I sculpt, search an answer to ease my melancholy but I know I can't escape my sadness with books of poetry or hiking trails or bicycling or friends. I know that I must indulge my sadness. I must sit in my room and count each and every sadness engraved with the endless faces of murdered Palestinian children, Israeli women blown to bits, Afghani and Iraqi citizens buried under tons of concrete. But my coins are worthless. They have no value other than to allow me to grieve. For those people who are not here to share this Christmas with their loved ones. What's 
I really enjoy about the poems in this book, Jimmy, is their their boldness, their their lack of hesitation in combining this love and regard and delight in children with the horrors of what's going on in the world. There's no there's no escaping that and there's no sugarcoating it. And you're not doing that with this. Yeah, I don't know. I, something's happening on in social media where, and it's been happening a long time. I think friends and the novelist uh, from your area there uh, mentioned something like this. Um, we can live in the midst of catastrophe and yet go on as if nothing is happening. That to me is like, I mean, I mean, the, on Christmas Eve, I think the Israelis murdered like 60 people that were at a wedding or something. And uh, we glanced at the news and then we went out and bought presents. And we don't have, like Joseph Campbell said, we don't have a way of grieving for our fellow man except to be consumers and go out and buy things so that we can ultimately find a place of indifference where we can at least survive the day. Um, but it's very difficult to live in a world where you know, as I speak to you this moment, uh, the, the Los Alamos National Laboratory has eight plutonium pits that they're, that they're constructing right now that is going to destroy the Rio Grande River forever. I mean, I mean, uh, how do I, how do I, how do I fit that into my consciousness in a way where I tell my daughter, have a good day at school, when I know school's not going to matter much? Uh, eight plutonium pits, which can manufacture so many weapons of destruction. And, and the people in Santa Fe are all, you know, getting their firewood to celebrate and their skis ready and their bicycles pumped up. And we go on our merry way. And I and it often haunts me that we don't have a way of, of, of enacting as a community our grief and our fear in the face of such holocaust, impending holocaust. We don't have a way of dealing with it other than to do drugs or call up our doctor or sue somebody or do something or go shopping or go shopping yeah something to alleviate the anxiety of day-to-day -day crisis that we endure so, yeah. yeah i i recently listened to an interview with ruth wilson gilmore who i'm not sure if you know about her but she's very much addressing um prison abolition and one of her it's all about building things rebuilding things from the ground up, which means taking things down systems as they are, which is, of course, a long, long moral arc of the universe. But one of the things that she says is where life is precious, life is precious. And I think that that's something that we seem to have moved away from as a people. I think you're... I think you're absolutely right. 
I think you're absolutely right. But in that in that state of mind where life is precious, also comes recognition of one's power. And if one recognizes one's power, we can use what they're using now to oppress us. We can use it to liberate us. For instance, all it takes is one prison to decide one day not to work, just one. One day, not a single prisoner goes to eat. One day, not a single prisoner fights another prisoner because they belong to a different gang. One day, all the gangs get together and they say, you know what, we want to start our own school. We use the facilities that they built to oppress us. We use them to educate us and liberate us. And it just takes acknowledging our power and acting on it. And that's it. We can use the prisons. I think they would be some of the most phenomenal uh, apartment complexes in the world because you, <laughs> you can get some great people in there, you know? Yeah. You can say, look, you know, we'll, we'll put some philosophers on this row and some poets on this row and, you know, carpenters on this row. And we'll send out, we'll send out batteries of carpenters to help the disadvantaged people in the neighborhood repair their roofs. These electricians can go out and help everybody pro bono. And then, uh, you know, I mean, the cooks could have culinary schools. I mean, it would be great to use the facilities that they constructed to oppress us. I mean, matter of fact, I didn't go as far as having one of the convicts marry the warden's daughter. We could have a wedding. <laughs> There's a concept. That would be a celebration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the warden would have a little convict babies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh yeah just just doing that kind of mental flipping so we're not continually doing the same thing over and over again which is to repeat in my mind the punishment aspects or ethos of the old testament it just feels like we're doing that over and over again and we haven't gotten our way out of that could you could you imagine that could you imagine we start with uh, one state, say the state of New Mexico, or the state of California, and we we, we rename the prisons ashrams. We we, we we rename them ashrams, place of transcendence, and everybody goes there and learns to meditate and do yoga. It would it would put a stop to prison. I mean, everybody would be like horrified at the beauty coming out of prisons, and then they would have to criminalize beauty. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there has to be a way to convince society that what they're doing is right. But pretty soon the facade falls off, the mask, the curtains open, and you realize it's just been a horrible, horrible tragedy. It really you know? has been, yeah. So, you know what I'm saying? So there's machines and there's systems that work. That the wheels have to turn. And they can't turn unless people believe what they're told. Once people stop believing what they're told, the wheels stop. And when the wheels stop, these people that are so unbelievably wealthy begin to freak out and panic because uh, uh, there's corporations that make billions per hour and have since colonial days. I mean, we have we have insurance companies and banks that have come from colonial days to the present time, mm -hmm. and they they camouflage themselves behind insurance companies and stuff. Yeah. And it's extraordinary how much money they have, how much power they have, how much they wield over the planet. Yeah. So, you know, it's just my, it's, we need to do, the, yeah, access our innocence. 
Definitely. Well, and I, I want to come back after uh, my half hour break here and talk about um, one way that you did that. Um, you're listening to the High Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella. And today we are talking to Jimmy Santiago Baca. You can follow the Hive Poetry Collective at Hive Poetry on Twitter or at the Hive Poetry Collective on Facebook. Our website can be found at hivepoetry.org, where you'll also find all our radio shows archived so you can listen anytime. You know, that's Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to receive our tri-yearly newsletter, please go to hivepoetry.org and subscribe. We'd love to tell you what we are up to. So, Jimmy, you mentioned that all it takes is one person. And I know I don't want to um, dwell on this much, but you you did just e exactly that when you stopped uh, eating and going to the, the dining hall when you were in prison, right? Yeah, well, 25 years institutionalized. You know, they were I was taken from grandma and grandpa when I was five. And there's a big difference between writing a novel about that and actually being the person that that happened to. So I remember there wasn't a lot of drama and stuff like that. I just remember being wrapped in a coat and no words were spoken. And my grandpa just, you could, you could, you could smell the wood on him, the trees on him. And you could, you could sense his beautiful big hands on my back and you could just, you could hear him pray for me and say, God's going to take care of you. And it was in the dark. And before you knew it, I was taken into the city and given over to some to some nuns. And at five years old, when you've only been in your village and only seen a few people all your life, to see these hooded specters standing on, a, on the steps in the middle of the night, uh, let's see, it was horrible, it was crazy. And uh, so, I was institutionalized starting then, and that lasted till I was 30. Um, something sort of, um, I knew early on when I had listened to so many stories from some of the, some of the inmates, uh, really terribly bad, bad stories. I knew that I, I had been unscathed. I wasn't really one of the victims. I was a listener, I became a listener of tales. And uh, um, it wasn't a, it wasn't the feat of courage or it wasn't, a, it didn't take any sort of strength or anything like that for me to sit down one day and start writing and reading. I was given this, I was given this historical landscape of people hundreds and thousands and thousands of people whose lives were destroyed. And I was able to see it. And then I sat down and wrote. And um, God, it felt good to take myself out of it, to sit back and be an observer and a writer. And, and I guess you could, I don't know why I did that, but I just didn't want to be part of it. It was kind of strange. I just stopped being part of it. I just stopped. And when you say that you were able to see that, what, how, how did you have that almost telescopic 
Vista? Well, it sounds crazy, but I, I watched my grandma making tortillas. I watched my grandpa put wood in the stove. I heard the music, the rancheras come on in the morning. I heard my grandpa put on his boots and his big jacket. I heard my grandma pray. And uh, I heard her cooking papas, potatoes, and red chili and eggs. And I knew that there was beauty. I knew that there was there was a place where that happened, where it fills your heart with love and, and happiness. I knew that. Now, why would they take that away from us? I don't know and impose this. All of these uh, horrible experiences by these people that I lived with. I didn't have those horrible experiences. I mean, I just did not like authority and I did anything I could to get in their face. But I wasn't like these kids, man, that were trafficked, you know? I mean, so many of the kids, so many of the men were trafficked in prison. And I sat there in awe of their ability to live on from it. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I mean, how can someone live on? I could completely understand how you could become a murderer after being trafficked for, for a decade and being abused by men mm-hmm. on a dude ranch or something or along the border. I completely understood how you could become criminalized. You could hate humanity. But but at the, beneath all of that, I wanted to get to the place where their emotions were. And so I began to write for them. I wrote poems for them. And I made them cry. And I made them hug me. And I made them come back to me to ask, how, how can they learn to read and write? I made them have hope that there could be an alternative. They're, they could deal with the trauma in another way besides beating somebody up. And I taught them. I taught them. And not only did I teach them grammatically, I taught them viscerally how to express themselves. I said to this one man who was like someone you would never want to mess with. He was so strong inside. I couldn't believe the enormous strength he had inside his spirit. It was incredible. He wanted to teach his daughter how to, he wanted to tell his daughter that he loves her, but he could never say it. And he went to visit her in the visiting room every Sunday, came back and really, really, really mad and angry at himself. But he said, those words don't mean anything, Santiago, they're cheap, they're, they don't mean anything. And I said, he says, anybody can say I love you, it doesn't mean, sh- it doesn't mean anything. And I said, okay, I got you. And then he would show me photographs of his workshop one day. He was a woodworker and stuff. He cut wood and delivered firewood in the winter. And I saw a box. He had a picture of a box with 500 bloody gloves in it. Bloody, worn, frayed leather gloves. And I said, wait, 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 let me see that picture again. And he showed it to me and I said, what's this? He said, those are all the gloves I wore out working. And I said, well, who the hell were you working for? He said, to put my daughter through college. I said, wow. So I said, take this photograph to the visiting room. I want you to, don't ever say the words, I love you, but show your daughter these gloves and tell her why you wore these gloves out until your hands bled, what the reason was for that. And it was the first day he came back with tears in his eyes and said, she understood that I love her. The gloves. You were doing the quintessential show, not tell. I was doing 
I was doing the quintessential, not show the visceral, yeah. visceral cry. You know? Yeah, it was wild. So <laughs> yeah, he 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 cherishes that photograph to this day. Uh, that's that's a great story. It means he loves his daughter. Oh yeah. Um, let's move to another one of your poems, Jimmy. Is there one that you'd like to to read that um, kind of moves along this line of? inspiring and noting i mean you've been a poet for la raza all your life really and maybe there's a poem that would resonate along those lines right now how about i just do this one that, that uh, this is the the woman that was put in prison at the border and they took her son away and they thought that by taking her baby away and putting her in a holding facility where she was raped by the guards, that it would break her and 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 uh, and uh, make her become some weak woman who had been broken. But after after being in prison there for a while on the border, uh, this is what her consciousness said to her inside her head. And I, I'm thinking that this is from. Um... When I walk through that door, I am. An immigrant mother's quest, right? Yeah. It's from Beacon Press. The day I am freed, when I walk through the internment camp door, I am Gandhi. When I walk through the door, I am Shay. In my heart, I say it louder. When I walk through the door, I throw my worries away. I let my frustrations go. All ill will I have for others, I let go. I brush my sleeves of the uncertainties of yesterday. When I walk through that door, if someone should ask you, tell them I am Ali. Tell them I am Cesar Chavez. When I walk through that internment door, when I take a step out into freedom, when I turn the corner, tell the world, should they ask, I am who I dream myself to be. A scientist and a doctor, a dancer, a poet. Let the whole world know I am who I dream myself to be. And my heart cries louder with passion. Tell them, there goes the poet, there goes the painter. Tell all the haters and racists and cynics, I will not let them influence how I see myself, that I am shaped by the loving hands of a dream. And no one makes me as they wish. Tell them from conference halls and classrooms, from every street corner and market where you meet, tell them that you've seen me and talked to me and that I am who I dream myself to be. When I opened my eyes this morning, I surrendered to my greatness. I knelt down next to my bunk and I opened up my arms to embrace my full being, my potential to be who I am in this world. Leader, teacher, activist, tell them, please, that I am no longer the woman they knew, that I have found a way to love myself. I closed my eyes, and when I opened them, I knew that when I walked through that door, I am Mother Teresa, I am Zapata, I am Anzaldu, and Betita Surjuana, Celia Cruz, and Manchu, because the day is young, and I've got mountains to move, mountains to move. Isn't that a beautiful poem? It's so great. Yeah, and I love the way you read it, just... It's propulsive. It's it's 
determined. It's got so much dignity in it. And the fact that you're, this whole book is writing from the perspective of a woman too, you know, that's, it's just fabulous. That's kind of crazy because it, it, I, I wrote it three times before before I was certain that I had to use a woman's voice. It was weird because I was like, "What? Huh? What? <laughs> what? What is this?" And 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 she said, "No, you have to write in my voice." And I said, "Okay." You listened. I listened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote another one called "I Am Rita," uh, flying in the sky or flying from the sky or falling. From, oh yeah, I am Rita falling from the sky. And it was in this documentary. And I got into the same sort of headspace with that with Rita. It, it, it was crazy. They found this lady in Kansas City rummaging through the dumpsters. And they put her in an asylum for 15 years. And they basically just classified her as mentally ill, um, schizophrenic. And she was talking a lot through the air and stuff. Somebody passing in the hallway with a doctor said, well, we have a, a schizophrenic in that in that cell. She just rambles all day, uh, and the doctor stopped and listened and said, "That's not rambling. That's a um, witchol language." And so they asked her what happened, how she got from there, from Chihuahua to there, and she told them. She said, "I walked the deserts," and no, and no one believed her until they decided to make a movie about her. What movie is that? Rita falling from the sky. Made by this beautiful woman, uh, independent filmmaker in Tucson, who's now passed on. Rita falling from the sky. Okay. Isn't that crazy that uh, she killed her husband because he had, I don't know what what he did, but he did like beat her or something. I'm not sure. And and she took off walking because she knew she wouldn't be able to live in the tribe anymore. It was the Radamuri, Tarahumara tribe. She took off walking and she ended up in Kansas City of all places. Incredible. And she, they found her rummaging in through the dumpster. And they kept her in an asylum for 15 years until a doctor came by who understood her language. And then it was, you know, it's so crazy because uh, how somebody can do that. They didn't stop her. They didn't, she wasn't flagged. And the no, but yeah, yeah, just the, the, these, these almost instantaneous classifications that we do of people without providing any without the curiosity or the wonder or the what what's going on in this situation it happens all the time it's all a, the time it's um that's why i feel i feel kind of bad for doctors because they took that vow to, to secure their patients best interests and boy the second they got their they got their official credentials to be an md the insurance company steps in and says you can't help all these people that need it and what do you do? I mean, you, you have to say, okay, you throw your hands up and say, fine. Uh, my whole vocation has just become meaningless. And then you live from that point on by the bottom line, which is making as much money as you can and living in the biggest house you can. Anyway, so it Capitalism. Goes. Yeah, yeah, it's probably- Yeah, you're listening to the High Poetry Collective here at KSQDFM 90.7, Santa Cruz, California. Again, we're talking to Jimmy Santiago Vaca from New Mexico, and I am your host, Julia Chiapella. Yeah, just that, that uh, those immediate uh, classifications, we got to put things in boxes often, you know, literally and figuratively to classify them. 
You know, it's kind of cool. I got to I got to hand it to the to the great creator. Uh, that very early on, I'm not really sure why it happened the way it did, but I decided to to uh, veer away from classifications. I decided not to accept uh, tenure at, at several universities that offered it. I decided not to be part of academia. I decided not to follow the foundations for poetry and a philanthropist and do all of that stuff that you're supposed to do in order for them to nominate you for this or for that or for whatever. I decided to do none of that and just to get as far away from that as I could. And at the end of the journey, or at the end of the journey, which is now, I find myself in euphoric awe that I that I put kids through college, that I that I have royalties that that sustain me and my children, my wife, and I'm amazed that I actually did it. I'm like, holy mackerel! I mean, this is incredible that I was able to do all that by saying no to all these people, and it was crazy because when I went to prison, the biggest word I had was no. You're going to go out and work with the rest of the convicts. No, you're going to go. You're going to participate in these programs. No, you're going to. You're going to. You're not going to learn to read and write. So I do all that and I come out into the world and I continue to say no. I'm not going to become part of this poetry foundation. I'm not going to become part of the academy. I'm not going to do this and do this and that. And everybody at the same time is saying, "Jimmy, you don't know what you're doing in your career." And I shake my head, and say, "I don't even know if I have a career. All I know is I wake up and I, there's something that's coming." in the music of language and life that I have to sort of follow, but I don't know what that is. And I'll let you know when I get there and discover it because I, I, don't, I don't have a vocation. I don't have anything now. I'm just trying to find out what the heck the compass is so I can follow this stuff. And now at the age of 70, I've realized I have traveled on the outskirts of all the offerings and the banquets. I have gone around the building without having been seen and I've scurried into the woods and I came out with poems. I mean, and, and here I am today. And well, I'm like, and I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking that you talked about all at the beginning of our conversation. All it needs to take, all it takes, is one person to say no, and it's almost as if your whole life is kind of validation, validation. of that happening. You, you know, stand up, stand up, own who you are, and stay as far away or as much as you want to stay away from the systems that are oppressing you and you can change the system well listen the the system doesn't necessarily have to oppress you to destroy you it can it, it can shower you with gifts and by showing you the power that it has to make you a credible poet in the eyes of others they can say okay I'm going to give you this award and it's going to really show the world that you're a poet. While inside, when you get home, your poems will be like mice that got into some poison cheese. <laughs> it's going to, it's, they're not going to be feeling too well. But if you get home after going with your son on a hike up in the mountains at night to see the stars and you come back, your poems are going to be roaring like solar flares inside you. And you're going to have to sit down and write. And, and that's really my tracking system is I have to be acutely aware of what the poem wants and not be sidetracked by acclaim, not be sidetracked by fame, not, not be sidetracked by giving all these people the power 
to give me uh, a claim. I have to let the poem do that work for me. The poem is the philanthropy. The poem is the foundation. The poem is, is the one that says to me, I bequeath unto you the mantle of poet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always been that way, and it, and it really has hurt me. But, you know, it's, it's sweet hurt. It's called the sweet hurt. It's called the what? The sweet hurt. Sweet hurt. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I know. That's what Herman Melville went through. Oh, yeah. When they turned down his novel 50 times, it's called The Sweet Hurt. Uh-huh. Because you know, you know, when he wrote that, he knew that he was in heaven during <laughs> the process. You know, no one can experience that beautiful thing unless you earn it. And that's what I have to say with some of the great authors. You know, they may have been, they may have suffered penury and poverty and so forth. But what they experienced in the process of writing that book that they that has gone on to become a classic, that's the kind of stuff that no one can buy. Absolutely. Um, we're getting close to our time uh, together, but I, I'm hoping that you, it's interesting because you read the uh, poem from um, uh, When I Walked Through That Door, which I thought would be a good one to actually close today because it is. <laughs> but yeah, there you go. I'm wondering, um, I mean, we have a little bit more time to talk, but also I just want to get one more poem in. So do you want to pick a poem? Uh, the little... A little small one. Okay. Here's the small one. This one's from No Enemies. The heart is a museum of natural history. Parts of poems hang from hooks and wires from the ceiling. Skeletal, screwed joints, glued razor teeth, clamped jaws. The poet works these parts, keeps them fed, clothed, sheltered, until they come alive and roar. So there so, you have it. So that that's such a terrific one, exactly what you were talking about. It's the the poem, yeah. the poem has its own life and it's just you gotta hang on and just follow. It's so strange, isn't it? That uh, it's so strange that uh, you can you can you can be present for the awakening, or you can watch the awakening from a distance through binoculars. The awakening of others, or you can be present for your own awakening, and I think that's what the mark of a of a really true poet is, is that you're 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 present for your own awakening. And that's the beautiful aspect of poetry offers us, to be present for your own awakening. It's not so much ego-driven as it is a great gift that you surrender to. I am present to my own awakening. And that's the gift of poetry. It's truly the gift of poetry. And and the the act of what I think is extreme humility to listen to that, which can sometimes come across as not humility sometimes, you know, because you're enthralled by the poem, you're enthralled by the muse, and you want to extol that, but it takes great, you have to kind of bow down at that altar <laughs> to receive it. No, it's it's wonderful. It's like, uh, 
I think that's what driven that's what drove Hemingway and Fitzgerald and all these other people was that was that when they wrote, they were they were driven by their need to be awakened to this ultra reality that that uh, prose and poetry offer us. They scale away all the illusions and they give you a sort of foundational ultra reality, which is the most beautiful thing you can have. I think gurus get that in their meditations and stuff. But it's quite a leap to be a guru in a cave somewhere in India and to be a writer in Manhattan or New Mexico. You know? But listen, thanks for inviting me. It's been so great to have you, Jimmy. I really appreciate it. I just I wanna uh, quickly talk just mention um blood in and blood out because right. it just recently got um it's the 30th anniversary. And I think if people haven't seen that or don't know about it. They should know about that because it was directed by Taylor Hackford, who did An Officer and a Gentleman, and it kind of went underground, but not in the Chicano community. You want to just talk briefly about that? Because you were screenwriter and producer for that. Just a little bit of... Well, you know, it's funny because it's I, I was shocked as anybody when I discovered that it has 200 million followers. 200 million, and that's, an, that's a conservative estimate. And they did a huge article on it in the LA Times, and we're coming out with a, with a book in September, a coffee table book of never-before-seen poetry or photographs or paintings from the movie. And um, uh, it, is, it has become a classic globally. It's everywhere. I go to Japan, they know it. I go to India, they know it. I go to Paraguay, they know it. I go to Wales, they know it. I go to, they know it everywhere. Even in Guam, where I had this flyover and stop for the evening. The next morning I got up and went down to the ocean. Everybody at the Hyatt Hotel Resort came down to ask if I had written Blood and Blood Out. And I said, yeah, everybody wanted my autograph. It's it's a huge classic film. Um, I have yet to pay for a hotel room in Mexico. It's so popular. <laughs> everybody says, oh, you're the guy that wrote that film. Everybody recognizes me. And I'm like, yes. They're like, no, you don't pay for the room. You don't pay for the room. I'm like, okay. And this goes on and on and on. I can go out right now anywhere in the city into a nightclub or a bar and ask anybody, 80% of the clientele would raise their head and say, yes, we love it. It's got a message. So what's happening this month, they're celebrating blood out, blood, blood in, blood out in almost every big city in America. Right. That's how big it is. That's, it's crazy. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. And then we're coming out with the coffee table book. And they're having a huge sold out fiesta in Los Angeles in a week, a blood and blood out fiesta. And it's completely sold out. Congratulations. Thank you. That's fabulous. And it just, yeah, it speaks, it speaks to, you know, continue to say no, because the powers well, that be are, are, are not in charge. The people are in charge. You know what? You couldn't be more right because Disney and Hollywood Pictures didn't promote it took it out of the theaters uh the critics were really harsh on it uh, and it would not go away and over the years it's accumulated hundreds of millions of followers That's so i mean it's been on the simpsons three times <laughs> it's been on the simpsons three times you know i've seen myself on the simpsons can you believe that who would have thought, thought huh who would have thought? thought yeah who would have thought 
Jimmy, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, it was a great conversation and and I so appreciate, appreciate your poetry, what you're doing, your education through Cedar Tree, uh, the efforts there. So, um, yes. Hey, thank can, I, you. Can, I ask, can I say one thing? Sure. Uh, June 23rd, 24th and 25th, it's it's in its 10th year. Uh, uh, we're having the Jimmy Santiago Barca Writers Retreat at the Albuquerque Art Museum, which is a fantastic, fantastic place. Anyway, if anybody wishes to make a trip and enjoy themselves, because it's fun, we have Perfect. we have the writing retreat, June 23rd, 24th, 25th. And, and in addition to the writing seminars, we have aesthetic dancing to open up the air bubbles for you to write. <laughs> and we have gardening to show you how gardening can help you write and get past writer's block. Oh, so excellent. Go to my website and sign up Perfect. and we're ready to rock. We'll be sure and have that um, on, on Anchor FM where our podcast is. So we'll include that information. Okay. Uh, All right. Thanks. Thank you, Jimmy. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening. You were listening and have been listening to the High Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. We were talking today with Jimmy Santiago Baca, and of course, you can uh, hear that again. We will be posting that those all art shows on Anchor FM or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to get our newsletter, please go to highpoetry.org and subscribe. Very good having you all join us today. Have a good one. <laughs>